Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 72 Grail Knight I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and who look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode will be looking at the legend that shaped history and these films, decoding the first superhero through the lens of the first Grail Knight. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. <laughs> Hello my friends, we meet again. A disclaimer right up front. This episode is going to be a high context discussion of these films, not for the faint of heart. If you're new to in-depth literary interpretation of film, I'd strongly suggest easing into it with some of the earlier episodes to lay down some of the foundational tools and references we make in this episode. Some recommended episodes, including, but not limited to, our episode on fantasy, illuminated texts, open minds, and the East. This episode basically presumes that you know Man of Steel and BVS backwards and forwards, as well as some of my past interpretations. By necessity, I can't retread and restate all of those references because I've got to relate an entirely new story and framework to you as well. We're going to cover a lot of material, but of course you can always listen to it again if you want. So, in today's episode, we're going to look into a story that's influenced countless creators. Wagner, Tennyson, Emerson, T.S. Eliot, Mark Twain, Umberto Eco, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and of course, Zack Snyder. It was a favorite story of the likes of Young, Campbell, Tolkien, and more. An idea spanning centuries. A story you certainly know of, but a story that you might not know. I speak of the Holy Grail, a term used today to represent the epitome, exemplar, or ideal. The Holy Grail of Christmas gifts. Holy Grail of PI work. The Holy Grail of modern medicine. The Holy Grail of science. The Holy Grail of hamburgers. For example, you might say that a pristine copy of Action Comics number one is the Holy Grail of comics for collectors. It's tied to a Thorian legend and a big influence on Joseph Campbell, who in turn has had a big influence on Zack Snyder's approach to these films. He embedded Joseph Campbell quotes into the embroidery of Superman's suit and the engraving of Wonder Woman's sword. That's about as direct an homage as you can get. To literally put another's words on your hero's chest? We know that Zack loves Borman's Excalibur. It's one of the few contemporary works to cameo in these films. And outside his filmography, he's made many references to Arthurian mythology. His All the Gods shirt features allusions to Campbell and to Camelot. And on December 18th, 2019, he took to Vero and posted a picture of the temptation of Percival, followed by a series of quotes from Excalibur and ending with Camelot Remix on January 8th. It's obvious that he has something to say, and in this series we'll decode some of what that might be. If we start at the end, that last post is the most obvious. Justice League was Zack Snyder's remix of Camelot, a Thurian legend through the lens of superheroes. And lest we lay all of this at the feet of Zack, 
Let's remember that Chris Terrio was a part of a master's program at Cambridge University, studying British literature and phenomenology. In a March 10, 2016 interview with the Wall Street Journal, Terrio specifically mentions Umberto Eco and W.H. Auden. Between his studies and his citations, Chris Terrio would have been steeped in Arthurian legend. It would have flowed through his thoughts, his veins, and from the tip of his pen. But are these efforts just grafted on at the last second as an afterthought? A slapdash attempt to tie together two unrelated things to give the illusion of more meaning? Or is this something intended and intricately included all along? Let's go on a grail quest through Man of Steel and BVS to find the answer. We're going to look at the story of the first Grail Knight, Percival, and see how shockingly similar it is in structure and themes to our first superhero, Superman, to decode some of the authorial intent behind these films. <laughs> but if you still doubt me, let's hear from the man himself, the influence of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, and Arthurian legend on these films. The following excerpts come from Zach's live-streamed commentary of BVS to celebrate its fourth anniversary and spend some time with the fans staying at home. It's a cyclical film. It was all designed to sort of begin and end in a circle, experiencing in a, in a sort of very Joseph Campbellian kind of way metaphor because I think it's universal in its Joseph Campbellian iconographic imagery that we are programmed with in pop culture even beyond religion. We all have it in our collective memory banks. I haven't even mentioned Excalibur in this whole thing, but of course Excalibur was in the poster. It's a huge influence on this movie. I'm a big John Borman fan. And it's funny to go through the movie like this because really just tip of the iceberg on every single scene and every single setup. We could spend a lifetime excavating that iceberg, but I'm excited to start digging deep with all of you in this episode. A brief history lesson first. The medieval period spans from the 5th to the 15th centuries, but King Arthur's legend was popularized in the 12th. This is when the Grail legend begins and gets refined and remixed across the ages. Here lies Arthur, king who was and king who will be. So reads the inscription on King Arthur's gravestone in Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. Writing in the 15th century, Mallory couldn't have known how prophetic this inscription would turn out to be. King Arthur has risen again and again in our collective imagination, along with his retinue of knights, Guinevere, the Round Table, Camelot, and of course, Excalibur. But where do these stories come from, and is there any truth to them? King Arthur, as we know him, is a creation of the later Middle Ages. There are hardly any written records from this time, so it's difficult to reconstruct an accurate history. However, surviving poetry from the era gives us some clues. One of the poems, the Gododin, contains the very first reference to Arthur, though Arthur himself doesn't actually appear in it. Hundreds of years later, in 1130, Geoffrey of Monmouth was a lowly cleric with grand ambitions. Using Celtic and Latin sources, he spent years creating a lengthy chronicle titled The History of the Kings of Britain. The centerpiece of this tome was King Arthur. History is a generous term for Geoffrey's account. Writing 600 years after the Saxon invasions, he cobbled together fragments of myth and poetry to compensate for the almost complete lack of official records. Geoffrey's chronicle got the attention he'd hoped for and was soon translated from Latin into French by the poet Wace around 1155 CE. Wace added another centerpiece of Arthurian lore to Geoffrey's sword, castle and wizard, the round table. After reading Wace's translation, another French poet, Chrétien de Troyes, 
wrote a series of romances that catapulted Arthur's story to fame. He introduced tales of individual knights like Lancelot and Gawain and mixed elements of romance in with the adventurers. He conceived Arthur, Lancelot and Guinevere's love triangle. In addition to interpersonal intrigue, he also introduced the Holy Grail. He lived in the middle of the Crusades and others imposed the preoccupations of the time on the Grail, casting it as a powerful relic from the crucifixion. Numerous adaptations in French and other languages followed from Chrétien's work. In the course of these retellings, Caerleon became Camelot and Caliburnus was rechristened Excalibur. In the 15th century, Sir Thomas Mallory synthesized these stories in Le Mort d'Arthur, the basis of many modern accounts of King Arthur. In the thousand years since Arthur first appeared in a Celtic poem, his story has transformed over and over to reflect the concerns of his chroniclers and their audiences. And we're still rewriting and adapting the legend today. Whether or not the man ever lived, loved, reigned or adventured, it's undeniable that the character has achieved immortality. While everyone knows of Arthur in broad strokes or in a few specific renditions, and most know of the Grail generally, it is less likely that they know the story of Percival, which is a pity because it's an influential story and one of Joseph Campbell's favorites. The comparative mythologist that put the monomyth into the mainstream absolutely adores it. Of Percival, Joseph Campbell says, quote, It is one of the richest, greatest, and most civilized works of the European Middle Ages, and as a monument, moreover, to the world's saving power of love in all its forms, perhaps the very greatest love story story of all time. End quote. <laughs> Remember that this is a man who wrote The Hero of a Thousand Faces, versed in literally thousands of myths and legends, but still elevating this one to the top as the greatest. Campbell uses Parzival as the answer to this question. What does the material mean to life? What does it mean to me? Campbell's retelling of the medieval myth of Parzival spoke to his students on a personal level of love and marriage. In the Middle Ages, people were required to profess beliefs they did not hold, to profess love for people whom they had married and had no love for. They held positions that they had inherited and hadn't earned. And so there's a context of inauthentic lives. How does that get healed? It gets healed through the example of an authentic life. The Arthurian tale of Parzival was the medieval model for an authentic life, the story of a young knight in King Arthur's court in quest of the Holy Grail. It's unsurprising that authentic tales share much in common, but we'll get to that a little later. Well, King Arthur's myth was already established by the time the Grail myth came along, which we can trace to a particular time, place, and author. Here, Professor Monica Potke provides that introduction. Sometime at the end of the 12th century, between the years 1180 and 1190, a man called Chrétien de Troyes first wrote about the Grail in a story he calls the story of the Grail. We know very little about Chrétien aside from his name and his dates. We do know that he wrote five narrative poems in Old French. All of them are of very high literary quality, and all of them claim to be written by someone named Chrétien. One of them tells us that he, in fact, is Chrétien from the town of Troyes. He tells us that the story of the Grail is the greatest story that has ever been told in royal court. And since Chrétien's romance began a tradition that would last for hundreds of years, I'd say he was probably right. The Grail's been the subject of literature, the visual arts, and even film for over 800 years. 
Over the centuries, dozens, if not hundreds, of authors and artists have interpreted the Grail in innumerable ways, and there's considerable disagreement among those authors and artists about how to imagine the Grail. There's even disagreement about such fundamental things as what the Grail is. Most authors think of the Grail as an object. It's usually a vessel of some sort, a container. It can be a dish, a bowl, a platter, a cup, but the Grail can also be something completely different. It's appeared in literature as a stone, as a book even as a person. For other authors, the grail is less an object than it is a symbol of an ideal. The grail represents a code by which to live, a goal in life to aim for, and perhaps knowledge that gives enrichment, significance to our lives. <laughs> now, Joseph Campbell makes a comment on the pronunciation of Cretien's name. Cretien of Troy, C-H-R-E-T-I-E-N, with a circumflex over the E, C-H-R-E-T-I-E-N, de and in old French, they would have said Troyes, T-R-O-Y-E-S. In old French, all the consonants are pronounced. And you don't have the wa. The wa comes into French at the time of the French Revolution. Francois would be the way they would have said Francis. <laughs> An interesting footnote, but I'll stick to the way that I've learned. Uh, another quick footnote. When you hear the word romance in this context, <laughs> we're not talking about trashy paperbacks with lurid cover art. It's a literary term of art referring to a new genre created by Cratian, roughly consisting of three elements, contemporary noble main characters, plus adventure, plus a dash of magical elements. <laughs> okay, end of footnotes. If we're interested in the Grail, why do we care about Percival? Well, the story of the Grail is the story of Percival, and vice versa. Professor Podke. Now, the story of the Grail actually has two titles. Chen himself calls it the story of the Grail, but it's conventionally also called the Percival. And it's called the Percival because that's the name of the main character in the story. What the Grail signifies in Chen's story really depends on how it fits into the larger story of Percival's development. Percival, in essence, is somebody who grows into a knight. He begins as a rustic fool. A young boy who grows up alone with his mother in a forest, far removed from the Arthurian court, far removed from any kind of civilization. But eventually, Percival will become a successful knight with all the military and the social skills he needs to serve Arthur and the inhabitants of Arthur's kingdom. And Crash Course concurs. The first time the Holy Grail appears as part of the Arthurian myth is in Christian de Troyes' Story of the Grail, a romance composed between 1181 and 1191. De Troyes not only made his Arthurian tale about the quest for the elusive grail, he also made Percival, and not Arthur or any other knight, the hero. So if we're after the grail, it comes by way of Percival, the general embodied in the specific. We'll see that the grail can take on almost any meaning one chooses to attach to it. Such fluidity is in the nature of the grail. As I've said, the grail is usually some sort of vessel, a container, and it's also a container for meaning. You can put whatever you like in a cup, so you can put whatever meaning you like in the grail. Yet, there are some unifying characteristics of the Grail across time and tales. First, it is mysterious and an enigma, something never fully explained or understood. Second, it must be actively sought, whether literally going on a quest or metaphorically decoding symbols to unlock the secret or searching for the wisdom within or without. Third, this search is difficult, a challenge, trial, or test not all who seek will find. Fourth and finally, if the searcher is blessed, the grail question will be answered. All who find learn some enriching revelation in the process. Earlier iterations of the legend were a call for your utmost for his highest. 
medieval authors tend to create a fairly coherent idea about the Grail. And for them, it highlights the highest values of medieval culture. On the one hand, for medieval authors, the Grail is about knighthood. And secondly, for medieval authors, it's about Christian belief and practice. And these features should sound familiar to longtime listeners as attributes of Man of Steel and BVS. Snyder is an incredibly interactive creator who really participates with the fandom on a remarkable level. Who else is personally running contests and prize support directly with the fans, or doing live commentary on his own initiative for the fans? But for all his engagement, he spends comparatively little time explaining his films beyond a relatively superficial level. He may answer when asked or give a hint here or there, but he isn't the sort to exhaustively lay out the symbols, meaning, and sources like some creators do. And this makes consumption an active process. As I've said countless times before, actively engaging these films is more rewarding than passively viewing them or using all the automatic modes of analysis that we've been conditioned with, which comes with all their own baggage, assumptions, and preconceptions. Obviously, this is a lot of work. I mean, listen to this podcast, it's a lot of work. But that means if you're one of the lucky few for which this film clicks, it's incredibly rewarding and resonant when it does. It becomes something you just can't help but praise, often with practically religious fervor. Meanwhile, on the other hand, there will be countless searchers who don't do the work, or with which it doesn't click, and the appeal of these films will forever remain a mystery to them. Nonetheless, his work invites the Grail Quest, something apparent to even casual film viewers. I will make the argument that especially like our big budget DC Comics superheroes are archetypes for myth in the same way as like the Greek gods were. So pretty much every myth has like some kind of solar deity, right? Well, that's Superman. Myth is considered to be fact. Well, nobody actually considers Superman to be fact. But that there is such an intense devotion to the canon that's within these mythologies, that there's constant arguments about what is true and what is not within the canon. This thing that is certainly fictional still takes on mythological, even religious power. So if anyone out there is thinking, oh, you mentioned Superman and Adam and Eve in the same breath, that is insulting or whatever. I encourage you not to take it that way. I would, see why that I would also say comparison. watch the last two Superman movies very carefully carefully because there's a lot of Christ imagery in there. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, him in cross-like poses, him being backlit by the sun in the same way that Jesus is backlit in certain paintings. Huh. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff going oh, cool. on. Note his last admonishment. It's there if you watch very carefully. That's the mode these movies were intended for and what we're going to do. Watch very carefully to point out the deep resonance with our Western mythological framework. <laughs> okay, but enough introduction. Let's get to that story. This is the opening line of the story. It was the season when trees flower, when shrubs leap out, when meadows go green, when birds, each in their own voice, sing sweetly in the morning, and all is aflame with joy. The poem is telling you that it's spring, the time of birth and optimism, just as Man of Steel opens with birth and hope, and nature calls out in response. The prologue to our story begins in a war, a world away with a warrior and a woman, before our hero is even born. The details will come to light later on, but we're in a cape and armor culture. 
a feudal society built around war. The father of our hero is a part of that warrior class. We know them as knights. Returning from his crusade, again a woman, a war, and at last our hero is born. But he will be raised never knowing knights, or war, or the trappings of his age, or his father. For through war, our hero's mother loses her sons, her husband, her entire world, except our infant hero, the last son of Pell. She leaves to raise our hero alone in the forest, away from the bustle of kings, castles, and courts. But most of all, away from war and any iota of knighthood, which might threaten to take him away from her. In the seclusion of the forest, she tries to instruct him in matters of faith and spirit, hoping he can escape being a product of a world built on war. But it's impossible for parents to completely shield their children from the world and the woes that come with it. The story begins in earnest when our hero is a young man and encounters knights for the first time. The career of his father, of his brothers, of his people. The one that his mother had tried so hard to keep him from. While as written, we will not learn the hero's name until much later in the story, I'll tell you now, the youth, our hero, is named Percival. Or is it? As a recovering prescriptivist who has cringed at the insertion of a space or hyphen into the name Superman, I can't tell you how maddening the many names of Percival was to me in my past. Honestly, I hated him for so petty a reason as the inconsistency in how he was called. It could be Percival, Percival, Parzival, Parsifal, and more. Back then, I preferred Galahad, who only varied in how many L's fell in his name. But now I've come to appreciate the permutations as proof of pedigree. The patina of an oft-repeated tale over time. Each variation brings with it meaning and nuance intended by the storyteller at the time. Etymologies intended, fabricated, or erroneous put emphasis on different themes in an ancient centuries-old story. Does Percival mean perceiving the veil, enlightenment, and transcendence? Does Percival mean piercing the valley, the one who walks the middle way between sides, light and dark? What about Wagner's allegation that Parsifal is Arabic for pure fool? Once one who wanted the one way to be clearly defined, certain, and universal, I've come to appreciate being a man of many names, as we get with the Man of Steel. Is Superman a description of a superior man, hearkening to the Ubermensch? Or is it a balance of two sides, two worlds, super and man? Krypton in the heavens and man here on Earth. We have Clark Kent, Kal-El, and a whole litany of nicknames and titles, from Soups to Big Blue, Smallville, Boy Scout, and The Strange Visitor. The last son of Krypton is the Man of Steel and the Man of Tomorrow. The many monikers of a man show his 80 years of mythology, so I think we should tolerate, if not admire, all those used for Percival over his 800 years of influence. <laughs> and we haven't even begun his story, where he'll pick up more titles and identities along the way. The story of the Grail is the story of Percival, and vice versa. So, returning to our story, each rendering of Percival's story has its own merits and elements of artistic expression. We're going to condense and combine them simply to share the parallels found in his story with the Superman. When our story begins, Percival is living alone with his mom in the Waste Forest which sounds unpleasant. Percival is an only child to a single mom because his dad and all his older brothers were killed serving as knights. Percival's mom never tells him this. She's all he has left, and she worries that if young, not-so-bright Percy learns the truth, he'll want to be a knight, and he'll get himself killed too. So Percival has been raised a naive fool. 
innocent and unaware of anything outside the forest. He grows up earnest, guileless, strong, and forthright. One day, while hunting, he hears an incredible cacophony of sound unlike anything he's ever heard before. We know it's the sound of horses, knights, and their armor riding together at speed, thundering hoofbeats, armor, and weapons, clattering in chorus. However, Percival is at first frightened of the sound and assumes that it must be demons and the devil himself coming. His mother had advised him to make the sign of the cross to ward off the demonic, but instead, Percival decides to stand and fight. He readies his hunting javelin, but when he catches sight of the knights, he drops his weapon in awe. Percival has never seen another soul, much less a company of knights and their attendants. There in the sunlight, shining in metal armor. He's never seen horses, weapons, or armor. They are literal knights in literal shining armor. But Percy has no idea what a knight is because his mom has shielded him from them. So he thinks they must be angels. Percival had thought that this had to be the host of heaven that his mother had told him about, that these bright ones were angels and the most beautiful among them, God. <laughs> so we've barely begun, but let's hit pause to look at all the parallels to our Superman story. In both, we have a pivotal moment where young men don't follow their parents. In both, we see how faith is used as a frame of reference. In both, we have contemporary stories steeped in dramatic irony. And in both, we have a first contact story. Let's briefly unpack those points. First, the following of one's parents. Percival was told to ward off the demonic with a cross, but it's within his nature to be a knight and fight. Why would he ward off the devil if he could fight and vanquish it. Now, if it were the devil, Percival is completely naive about his ability to win with just his javelin. Yet in reckless youth and courage, Percival disregards his mother, obeys his nature, and readies his weapon. In Man of Steel, Clark was told to keep his secret around others. Well, Clark, you have to keep this side of yourself a secret. But it is within his nature to be the hero and help. Why would he just stand by when he could help and save them? But if he were to help, Clark is completely naive about helping as a purely harmless act. His secret would have consequences that he couldn't completely fathom in his youth. Yet in his youth and courage, Clark disregards his parents, obeys his nature, and saves the kids on the bus. We need this kind of naive courage and energy for change sometimes, but it also brings with it chaos and damage. The Percival mythos is filled with several other stories of how his innocent naivety wreaks havoc that we won't cover here, but as Campbell says, So he's killed his mother and he didn't mean that either. He's going to go through for a long way just being the one that knocks things over. And we may return to this theme later with the stages of adulthood, but all the instances of collateral in Superman mirror these phases. The unintended death of a parent and being blamed for knocking things over. <laughs> Bumpkins both. Both stories use setting and upbringing to underscore this. Clark gets raised in rural Kansas on a farm away from the speed and modernity of the city, and Percival is raised in the medieval equivalent, the untamed wildwood away from all civilization. The nobility of their blood is concealed from them, but inevitably their noble nature comes out regardless. No mother has ever succeeded in keeping her son from danger when his father's blood begins to stir in him. This motif is sometimes called the fair unknown, as Joseph Campbell describes. Now, in the romantic view of the Middle Ages, this awakens in him his noble nature. He has inherited the knightly character of his wonderful knightly father, and even though ignorant of it and living under an illusion, he has been awakened. Now, this is the counterpart of the call to adventure. The second parallel is how faith is 
used as a frame of reference for our encounters with the extraordinary. When Percival hears a sound he's never heard before or sees a sight he's never seen before, his first instinct is to ascribe it to the spiritual realm, the devil and demons, God and his angels. Moreover, we see our tendency to go to extremes. The source of Percival's stimuli came either from the pit of hell or beyond the pearly gates. These tendencies are both reflected in Superman's story. God is credited with the bus rescue or questioned as the source of Clark's differences. I'm sure what he thought he saw was, was an act of God, Jonathan. This was providence. Is she right? Did God do this to me? And BVS expressly points out our dualistic tendency to frame the unknown along spiritual extremes. What we've done is we project ourselves onto him. The fact is, maybe he's not some sort of devil or Jesus character. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. We see, too, that their perception of parental advice is limited by their youth and inexperience. And Percival is maybe not the kind of knight you're used to. He's a very brave young man, but he's not the sharpest lance in the armory. And it also turns out that his chivalry and naivete play big parts in his hero's journey. For Percival, he lacks personal spiritual experience, so he interprets his mother's teachings literally, materially, and superficially. He hears a sound and is afraid, so it must be demons. He sees knights shine, so they must be angels. He's in awe of their leader, so therefore he must be God. Percival draws direct and superficial lines between appearances, experiences, and the material with the supernatural teachings for which he lacks context and personal knowledge, and accordingly lacks any kind of convictions about said beliefs, readily ignoring his mother's advice about the sign of the cross or switching his assessment from demons to angels instantly. Of course, we know that Percival's destiny is entwined with that of the Holy Grail, so he will come to learn about the spiritual, the supernatural, the hidden and elusive nature of things being beyond what they appear, what they make you feel, and your first impression, and will personally wrestle with God. For Clark, he lacks personal experience in the complexity of the world, so he he interprets his parents' teachings simplistically and absolutely. If you're telling me to keep this secret, what was I supposed to do? Just let them die? If the admonishment to keep the secret is absolute, but also the valuation of life and giving aid, these rules are in contradiction, and one must be sacrificed to the other. Clark lacks the understanding for how the world will react to his secret, while not understanding the nuance of his parents' position, and accordingly risks the secret for the sake of his classmates. As Percival was blind to the spiritual, Clark begins blind to how his secret will shake the world. Instead, he sees only the lives immediately in front of him and how he can help. So of course he does. But we know that Superman will come to grapple with his impact on the world as his story unfolds. At this point, while they lack personal conviction, note that they are both open to the wisdom of their elders. Even if Percival flip-flops, he still believes that these are spiritual beings upon first impression. And likewise, Clark tries to keep his secret until he can't. Third and finally, they are both telling contemporary tales filled with dramatic irony. Reading his story 800 years later, sometimes we forget that Cratian was writing for a contemporary audience at the time. While we look back at knights with an aura of magic, mystery, and ancient history, remember that the Grail story was meant to entertain the ladies and instruct the knights of Cratian's time. His story took place entirely within their time and place, the only mystical or magical elements being the in-story magic itself.
itself, similar to how Man of Steel takes place completely in our contemporary time. And the only supernatural elements are the superheroes themselves and their science fiction trappings. Everything else is grounded in our time and reality. It's important to note that both works were building off an existing legend, but taking it in a new direction. The author legend had already been established and popularized, but Kratian was responsible for shifting the story of King Arthur from military history to the realm of romantic literature, fantasy, and magic, going from a story of conquest to a message of faith and purpose. Kratian had a substantial influence on the history of Arthurian literature. Kratian invents the notion of Camelot, Arthur's court, as an ideal place. And Kratian invents two of the most popular stories associated with it. He invents the story of Lancelot's adulterous love for Guinevere. And Kratian also invents the story of how Arthur's knights search for the grail. Similarly, Man of Steel was built off the existing Superman mythos, but moving it towards reality and away from fantasy, while filled with a message of faith and purpose. Man of Steel has already added ideas to the collective cultural Superman mythos in the same way Kratian shaped Authorian legend. Building off an existing idea creates opportunities for dramatic irony which both works exploit. Civilized contemporaries reading Percival's story would know what Percival does not. They know what horses are, what knights are, what armor is, and what kind of king author is. It is intentionally humorous and dramatic irony, showing that Percival is a naive fool. And it's often played this way in our superhero origins, where the character is just catching up with what the audience already knows. From being familiar with the mythos. When Percival asks if they're angels, what's a lance, what's a knight, and so on, it's echoed in our superheroes. I can see and hear everything, I'm invulnerable to fire, and I can fly? Fly! Up, up, and away, Web! Shazam! Go! Go! Go, Web, go! Just as Cradian's audience already knew what all these things and trappings were, we already know the powers and destinies of our superheroes. Yet this dramatic irony is not just for amusement. The novelty of these things to our heroes is meant to emphasize that they are not to be taken for granted. A horse is a big deal. Armor is special. The entire concept of knighthood is mind-blowing. The naive fool serves to represent the mundane to the audience as fresh, relevant, and see beyond expectation. The value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. By putting bread, horse, or the very roads into a myth, we do not retreat from reality, we rediscover it. Not simply to assume nobility warrants knighthood or that powers make a superhero, but to actually value them anew. Returning to our story, Percival begins to worship the knights, but is quickly corrected. Once he realizes they're not angels, Percival starts asking the knights a ton of questions, like, what you carrying? The knights look at each other like, it's a lance, dude. He asks about their horses, armor, swords, shields, and lances, the instruments of a knight for which he knows nothing about. I have so many questions. And to their credit, despite finding Percival to be a fool who seems to know nothing about anything, the knights patiently, earnestly, and accurately answer his questions, even if Percival misunderstands what they say by taking it too literally. For example, one exchange goes like this. Lad, we're not angels, we're knights. 
and Percival does not think to ask, what is a knight? But instead he asks, how do you become a knight? King Arthur made me a knight. Percival, wanting to be like these impressive shining beings, doesn't ask how, but imagines that Arthur can instantaneously transform anyone into a knight. So he asks, where can I find him? And the knights give him directions and Percival sets off to become a knight despite being ill-equipped, literally lacking equipment or any understanding of what knighthood entails. I don't understand your words, but I would gladly go to the king who makes knights, and I will go, no matter what. So off he goes, on his quest, never to see his mother again. When Percival's mother learns of this, she's grief-stricken and dies of heartbreak. And so Percival is orphaned when he leaves his world behind, just as Cal was when he arrived in Kansas. But a more interesting parallel is the dual role of this introductory scene. Of course, it services the plot, but it also portents the future. It shows us Percival as he is in the present, and who he one day will be, a distinguished knight of the round table. In Man of Steel, the flashbacks serve a similar function, showing us the hero Clark is contrasted against the recollections of his childhood confusion. It'd be interesting creative exercise to have Clark converse with himself across the ages at age 7 or 13 with himself at 33 or 35. In a way, that's what these flashbacks were meant to construct in the subconscious. You're seeing adult Clark reflect back upon his path with a different perspective. It seems cruel to flash a vision of completion to a 16-year-old boy and set him on the road to find the embodiment of that quality, but such is the motivation of any true spiritual life. One day. Not yet. Let's skip the first contact parallels for now. They seem self-evident and you can listen to our first contact episode for more on that. The interplay of destiny and promise continue as Percival makes his way to King Arthur's court. In different tellings, the prophecy comes by different ways, including, but not limited to, this one. Now, there is in Arthur's court a damsel who has not smiled nor laughed for six years. The legend in the court is that when the best knight in the world appears, the damsel who has not smiled for six years will burst into laughter. The instant this damsel sees Parsifal, she bursts into laughter and joy. The court is mightily impressed with this. Apparently, the best knight in the world has just appeared. Here is this naive youth, this boy in a homespun garment, completely untutored, and the maiden is laughing. Extraordinary. In another variation, an empty seat is reserved at the round table for the Grail Knight to come, Siege Perilous, or the Seat of Danger, so-called because anyone unworthy who deigned to sit in the chair would be struck dead. But the destined one, who would actually find and recover the grail, could claim that seat without fear. The feat is similar to Arthur drawing the sword from the stone or the anvil. There's nothing inherently significant about these actions. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Making someone laugh sitting in a chair or freeing a sword doesn't dictate whether one will be a great knight or king, but get tied as signs, symbols, and portents of an inescapable destiny. Footnote, medieval thinking found prophecy to be an anathema to free will and therefore God, with the notable exception of God-given prophecy. Accordingly, each of these portents are implicitly endorsed by God to the medieval mind. And we can use that line of thinking with a common criticism about Man of Steel. There's no issue with Jor-El and Jonathan placing great expectations upon Clark while simultaneously emphasizing his ability to choose and decide freely. Your mother and I believe Krypton had lost something precious. The element of choice, of chance. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. You're the answer, son. You just have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark, because whoever that man is, good character or bad, he's, 
is going to change the world. The tension of these ideas isn't some oversight by the filmmakers, but a philosophical concept spanning millennia. Two more notes about Destiny. First, Destiny doesn't mean free from danger, and second, Destiny doesn't mean solely success. It's obvious that despite your destiny, there will be hazards and hurdles, which is partly why it's called Siege Perilous. It's why the Chosen One often has to die, one way or another, before they can arise. It is error to claim that Destiny is an assurance of safety throughout, just as it doesn't mean success. After all, great expectations come with the prophecy. Whether the sword says you are the once and future king, or the seat says that you will be the first and only successful grail knight, or society expects you to be the world's greatest superhero, almost by definition, anything falling short of that, any failure, stumbling, falling, stagnation, or striving, could be called falling short of those great expectations. Yet, rather than pretend that their predicted greatness means an unfailing chain of constant success, the the filmmakers mirror the ancient wisdom of Percival's 800-year-old story. Your destined potential doesn't mean you won't fail, fall, and make mistakes along the way. Nor does that great future mean that you're expected to look like it out of the gate as you are or first begin. Percival's story underscores this with his appearance, specifically the garment given to him by his mother. When Percival ventures out into the world and first appears in King Arthur's court, he's wearing a fool's cloth or a motley rig. Basically, he looks like a simpleton, fool, or jester. Percival values it because it was given to him by his mother. And similarly, Cal is only too proud to wear the regalia given to him by his father. To contemporary minds, it's odd to show up in such attire without context, but to Cal, it's a mark of his heritage and a gift from his father. And despite Clark's persistent worries about alienation, he doesn't forgo the cape and costume just for the sake of fitting in. And despite Percival's goal of becoming a knight, he still wears clothing that might impede every first impression that he makes. Okay, so we've arrived at King Arthur's court. The next major chapter of Percival's story is the tale of the Red Knight, interspersed with Superman's story. Just as he's arriving in Arthur's court, a knight in flaming red armor is coming out carrying a golden chalice. Now this is a king, one of the greatest kings in the world, who feels that King Arthur has stolen some of his property. He's going in now to reclaim the property. Superman's first foe was also a great leader and attempting to retrieve something stolen. Eventually, our military leader, General Zod, attempted a coup. I was Krypton's military leader. I know you stole the Codex, Jurel. Surrender it, and I'll let you live. Your father stole the Registry's Codex. Where is the Codex, Cal? So he goes in to challenge King Arthur, and he does it by riding into the court, going right to the table where Arthur and his knights are sitting, and Guinevere by Arthur's side. And he takes the wine glass from Guinevere and throws the wine in her face and says, anyone who wants to avenge this, meet me out in the yard. As the Red Knight issued his challenge by threat to the matriarch, Superman takes threats to his matriarch as a challenge. Where has he hidden it? I don't know. Where is the Codex? You think you can threaten my mother? There has not been a knight in King Arthur's court strong enough to stand up to the Red Knight. As Parsifal leaves Arthur's court, he is met at the door by the Red Knight. This wonderful being is strong enough to do as he wishes without fear, for no one in the court can oppose him. He had taken the silver cup, the chalice, and no one was strong enough to stop him. Just as King Arthur's court is powerless to stop the Red Knight, the Earth can do nothing to stop Zod. If there's a chance I can save Earth, shouldn't I take it? Maybe. I'm not about to let that stop me from trying. 
Percival obtains King Arthur's permission to challenge the Red Knight just as Superman cooperates with military approval and authorization against Zod. Just at that time, this lout rides in and thinks, oh, I'm going to be the champion. And he rides out to uh, kill the king. Well, when the king sees this phenomenon on a farm horse, you know, in a fool's rig coming at him, he won't even insult his lance by using it properly, but he turns it around the other way and just slugs him off the horse. Parsifal and his horse are on the ground. <laughs> the parallel is obvious. The Red Knight doesn't take Percival seriously in his costume with his inexperience, lack of training, and equipment. Percival is completely outmatched by the measures of the warrior class. Superman shows up in costume and has never raised his fists in anger before. Nice suit, son. I was bred to be a warrior, cow. Trained my entire life to master my senses. Where did you train? On a farm? When Zod and Superman finally face off, Zod doesn't take Cal seriously as an opponent. He downs him several times but doesn't pounce to finish him off. He plays with him because he wants him to suffer, to feel every blow. The Red Knight and Zod are the first aggressors and expected to easily kill their inexperienced opponents. And yet... Parsifal reaches, takes a javelin, and sends it through the knight's visor into his eye and kills the knight. It's not the proper way to kill a knight, so Arthur's court is now twice shamed. Don't do this! Stop! Never. Just as Percival's javelin broke social norms, so too did breaking Zod's neck. Knights are expected to combat within certain rules and expectations, often coded as chivalry. Failure to adhere to the code is seen as a moral failing, irrespective of the result. Well, the idea is, is that because your opponent is a fellow elite cavalryman, a knight, in defeat, you are supposed to offer him the chance to surrender. Obviously, there's plenty of killing in fighting itself, but this code develops. When you have the advantage over a defeated warrior, a fellow knight, you should offer him clemency and he can surrender for ransom, partly due to the reluctance to kill fellow Christians. Similarly, superheroes, and Superman specifically, are often expected to fight within certain rules and never kill. Once overseen by the Comics Code Authority, and failure to adhere is often seen as a moral failing. Neither of our heroes could know of these constructed codes. Percival brought up in a world without knights, and Clark brought up in a world without superheroes. Accordingly, it is an innocent transgression without premeditation or malice aforethought, and yet others don't hesitate to condemn them. If all men are fallen, so too is Parzival. His first knightly encounter, the first combatant that he kills, is a cousin of his. There's a theme of kin strife in Percival that we don't have time to go into, but surely you can see the parallel with Superman. Zod is the last living member of his people, so being forced to kill Zod taps into these ancient kin strife themes that we might talk about later. Instead, I want to talk about another parallel that this incident illustrates. This is the only killing Parsifal commits and represents a very important part in the development of a young man. That's crazy, right? Percival's first fight ends with him killing, but he never kills another knight. Superman's first film ends with him killing, but he never kills another sentient supervillain. This is strange because knights are in the business of war, and the number of cinematic superheroes who've killed vastly outnumber those who haven't. In fact, most superheroes on screen have kill counts that would put serial killers to shame. 
Stranger still, they didn't go the other way either. If the sanctity of life is such a virtue, why not keep our paragons pure and pristine? Make it so that Percival and Superman never kill, instead of making killing their debut. I have to believe that there is meaning in such a specific configuration of events in stories spanning eight centuries. And note too, that after this first fight, it isn't as if they completely give up fighting and take a position of pacifism. No, if anything, they fight a lot and too much compared to modern civilized society. This is a really weird mix of motivations. It's an inversion of our sensibility surrounding force, which is that you avoid violence until the gravest extreme, at which point you are excused or even morally justified in using violence. Meanwhile, the typical superhero or medieval knight actually readily engages in violence, but then at the point of the gravest extreme, when one would normally be justified or excused in using lethal force, suddenly then it becomes taboo to take a life and use violence. For superheroes, this is so obvious, we sometimes take for granted the inherent violence of traditional superhero comics. Most superhero powers or gimmicks relate to combat, and many powers have limited utility outside of fighting and violence. We basically expect them to fight at the drop of a hat, even if that risks death, injury, or maiming, but not to kill at the end of the day. Interestingly, for knights, a lot of their violence was in a way performative. Despite a feudal society structured around armed conflict, actual casualties of armored knights was low, less than 5%. Even if captured, it was the custom to ransom and return knights. Mortality rates from transport or exhaustion were actually higher than from combat, and in a weird way this should make intuitive sense, that a class designed to fight is going to be good at surviving fights. The majority of soldiers and combatants in any period survived. 90% of people survived. You had a roughly 9 in 10 chance of going home again at the end of it. So therefore, the actual casualties we're talking about are a relatively small percentage of the total number of combatants. Of course, the culture of chivalry had a lot to do with it as well. If you were a warrior facing defeat, there were two choices, death or slavery. What we see happening in the 10th century is these knights, these elite armed warriors fighting on horseback, develop a brotherhood in arms, a sense that these local conflicts between, often between men who are kinsmen or they are known quantities, they're culturally similar, they're frank the Christians, a sense of clemency develops. And crucially, that's tied to ransom. So honourable surrender becomes one of the key facets of early chivalry. And so you have this class of warriors that are always fighting but rarely dying, sometimes making the performance even more overt. For example, resolving conflicts through martial tournaments, jousting and dueling, rather than war. This explains, of course, the fundamental economic motivation behind chivalry. I mean, it was the tournament circuit which allowed younger sons to make their fortunes and to become great. And so this sense that we can make combat this ideal of our class, we can make it, relatively speaking, safe, and we can keep doing it, and there will be great, great winners. This gave license to the violence and fighting and civilized it to society's tastes. There was much more a sense that um, warfare is endemic, it's continual, it's continual. If you've lost something this week, you might win it back next week. And so in some ways, you could say that the clemency actually helped warfare to remain endemic because the stakes were lower and therefore it could carry on continually. And this is why Percival and Superman kill in such a transgressive manner. Instead of giving you the violence that you expect, the mercy that you want, in feel-good, glossy finish fashion. 
Their authentic confrontation of norms is meant to wake up the audience from their acceptance of insane customs around acceptable violence, sanitized if we only do it the right and noble, societally accepted way. And that's a small piece of why it's significant that Percival and Clark take a life. It is expected of them, but they are in fact reluctant to do it and never do it again. One of the many side stories that I've had to abridge is when Percival is coming of age and weeps over killing a bird for the first time. Time. And similarly, Clark has been raised to hold back violence and never raise his fists in anger. These two don't like killing or violence, which is why their definitive Red Knight moment involves it. The hero who isn't a soldier, the knight who isn't a killer. They don't know how to honor him, except as a soldier. And this is just a twig on the branch of a major theme in both works about societal roles versus personal destiny. Much more to say about this, but we've got to move on. And so one of the most resonant aspects of the Red Knight comes from the next part of the story. And he sends a young page out to see what's going on in the yard. The young page finds Percival dragging the Red Knight around to get the armor off, doesn't know how to do it. So the page helps him get it off, puts it on him. Percival gets on the knight's big horse. He knows how to start the horse, but not how to stop it. And boom, he's off. This is Percival off on his career. And with this, Percival becomes the Red Knight. And it's a little like the secret identity dynamic for superheroes. The Red Knight's reputation precedes him, so everyone thinks it's that Red Knight without knowing it's Percival underneath. And with this part of the story, we have three observations. First, the idea of humility and balance in the face of inexperience. Second, the idea of the unstoppable horse. And third, taking on the identity of the vanquished. For the first point, it's important to stress that these stories aren't about extremes, but balance. While they may be correctives to the obligations of society, they aren't endorsing complete anarchy as the solution. Despite standing in for society and institutions, Camelot and King Arthur are a good thing. Percival can't start on his career as a knight without things already established by society and its institutions. He didn't smith that armor from scratch or train that charger from a foal. And even to take these items for himself, he had to get guidance from the lowest member of the court. Not a king or a knight or even a squire. A mere page. But even a page versed in society's ways has more knowledge of armor and its workings than Percival. You have to be willing to take instruction on things that you know nothing about to benefit from society society as it is. Similarly, Superman isn't here to tear down every edifice of American society. Rather, he relies upon and supports these institutions. He takes his cues from the culture that he was raised in, rather than trying to rewrite it with his power by fiat. While the charging horse is a symbol of how, in our youth, we have boundless energy to start projects and missions, but often don't know how to stop or exit gracefully. Though he can get his horse started, no one has ever taught him how to stop it. He rides all day until both horse and rider stop in sheer exhaustion. Have you some memory of a project you began in your early youth which started easily enough, but stopping it eluded you? We see this with Superman, who's all too excited to become a friend who's just here to help and do the right thing, but doesn't know how to communicate or quit without ghosting. Clark knows that he wants to be Superman, even though it's not always clear what that means. So finally, becoming the Red Knight is a motif that we will see again and again in myth. If you're familiar with the work of Carl Jung, you might know why he and Campbell became so fixated on this part of the story. Jung is well known for the concept of the shadow self and its integration. Dr. James Hollis summarizes. Possibly the wisest thing ever said about human nature was uttered 20 centuries ago by an ancient Roman playwright, Terence, who said, Nothing human 
is alien to me. And what he was suggesting is we carry all of human nature. We are the carriers of human nature. So there are elements in us that we would perhaps repudiate, that we would fear, that we want to deny, or we might project onto someone else. And these constitute what Jung called the shadow. Now, the shadow is one of Jung's richest concepts. It's one of his most misunderstood concepts. Too often it's associated with evil, and certainly evil can come from our shadow. We don't wish to acknowledge that we're avaricious, or we're stingy, or we're jealous of others, or envious, or we don't wish to acknowledge animosity towards someone, but it's roiling within our psyche nonetheless, and often spills out in unconscious ways, can show up in our dreams, can show up in our unconscious behaviors. And many of our best impulses are part of the human shadow too. Those capacities for generosity, for risk and adventure, for creativity, those too are part of our shadow because we often find ourselves intimidated by what they ask of us. We find ourselves uh, challenged, perhaps, by uh, standing up to and embodying some of our possibilities. And so that too is shadow because we could define shadow as those parts of myself that when brought to consciousness... I find troubling, I find contradictory to my values, I find counter to my intentionality, and yet they're there, and they show up. And there are collective shadows, too. Every institution has its pathology, no matter how noble the intent of the institution. Every nation has its darker side. People often project what is unacceptable in themselves onto their neighbor, and that's been the source of so much history of violence and terror in our world. And so the human shadow represents our greatest moral task. And that task begins at home. It begins through our own acknowledgement of the fact that I carry within me all that I wish to repudiate in humankind. And I need to be conscious around that because where I'm not conscious, it will likely show up unconsciously in my world as a result of my own behaviors or my own resistance to honest efforts. To understand the nature of the shadow is to be called constantly to examine our values. It's not that we are doing wrong deliberately, but wrong often comes out unconsciously. And so I need to become aware of those areas of one's life where there's a certain autonomy and they're acting and show up in our relationships and our behaviors and so forth. The healing of the human psyche is always going to come from the side of the shadow. It often shows up as psychopathology. And from a Jungian standpoint, we welcome the psychopathology because it tells us about what's going on in the psyche. It tells us about the compensatory factors that are at work in the psyche. The human ego is not capable of full awareness. It's not capable of healing itself. It has to come to terms with those parts of itself which are operating in forms that are contrary to. <laughs> we could fit volumes commenting on that condensation of the shadow concept, but the aspect that I want to focus on is making the unconscious conscious. Why? Dr. Hollis hints at it towards the end. Jung believed that we could be healed whole and grow by integrating our shadow. Instead of letting it lurk in our unconscious and control our behavior, bringing it to light, taming it to use its strengths and ward against its weaknesses. This was a truth that Jung believed was buried in our collective consciousness, in the form of myths and legends, all telling the same story, like St. George taming the dragon. So accordingly, we see it in modern myths too. Whether unconsciously as a part of that collective Western mythos, or consciously adapted by those studying and influenced by Joseph Campbell, such as George Lucas or Zack Snyder. 
Well, when I did Star Wars, I consciously set about to recreate myths and the classic mythological motifs. And I wanted to use those motifs to deal with issues that existed today. We see this all over Batman v Superman. Batman is the clearest example. His trauma gives birth to a shadow that completely consumes his life. To the extent that he acknowledges it, he derives incredible strength from that shadow. It turns him into an unstoppable vigilante, yet the part that remains unconscious, which he refuses to acknowledge, also leads him to excessive violence and hatred for Superman. It possesses him to act irrationally, which of course he rationalizes and justifies on behalf of the human race race. When we act out of our shadow, it's not like we're short on reasons or explanations. It's just that those explanations are constructed after the fact, post hoc explanations to excuse ourselves. Only in the Martha moment, when his unconscious is revealed to himself, does he realize how his shadow has brought him to this point, how personal this all was to him, and how impersonal Superman was to the situation. In a sense, anyone could be at the end of that spear and he still would have arrived there following his shadow. Batman's further integration of his shadow is the first step from vigilante crime fighter towards becoming a superhero. Superman's shadow in BVS is a little more subtle. While Clark has better mental health than most, like all of us, he still has a shadow. Still has things that he pushes down, ignores, which leads to behavioral issues. He doesn't want to confront the boundaries between his love of Lois and his heroic calling, even when Lois tries to make it conscious with questions. He doesn't want to confront humanity and talk. Why can't his actions speak for him and be enough? And he doesn't want to confront his corruptibility since his solution is to simply never slip. If he never strays, never falls, never goes out of bounds, then why should anyone take issue with his power? Lex's master stroke is seeing Superman's shadow so clearly and exploiting it from every angle. Lex put Lois in harm's way, in a foreign nation, with complicated politics, and blows up Superman's chance to reply. Where does Superman's personal interest stop and the world's interest begin? Are these actions arguably out of bounds? And what does he have to say for himself about all of this? Through the trials of BVS, Superman becomes conscious of all these issues and integrates his shadow. Jonathan gives him clarity about Lois, and it is through talking that Batman turns ally, and it is through sacrifice that the issue of corruptibility is settled with the world and allows the superhero concept to be born. This explains why my former shadow self would go crazy when people would say that Superman has no character development in VVS. <laughs> well, I admit it still bothers me a bit. <laughs> Look, taking on the identity or strength of things that you fight is a mythological constant and practical reality. Whether we're talking about the spoils of war, Mega Man, or Hercules in the skin of the Nemean lion, or armed with arrows dipped in the blood of the Hydra, it's one of the reasons we have so few surviving castles to this day. Across the ages, castles were cleared from their kingdoms, ruined or slighted, to prevent them from being captured and used by the enemy against them. Percival's acquisition of the Red Knight's tools and title reflects how we become the things we fight. We're criminals, Alfred. Lex ends up more like his dad than he doesn't. Wonder Woman, the god killer, ends up being a god. The Justice League take on a unity and are unified. We can succumb to this process or consciously guide it to our advantage. As Nietzsche is oft quoted, whoever fights with monsters should see that he does not become a monster in the process. When you gaze too long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. End quote. The pivotal moment in BVS is when Batman is on the precipice of becoming a new Joe Chill. In the end, he's about to discover that his actions can easily go too far and that he can become what he observes. 
what he hates, the very thing he's fighting against. In this sequence, he's basically turned into the murderer of his parents in a way. Because, like, he's allowing them to kill Martha. So, like, is he responsible for the death of Martha? Is, is he is he become, basically, 100% the thing that he, he, blinded by his hatred, he's become the thing he hates. When Superman starts his conflict with Batman, he is only too aware of Batman's shadow, but not his own. It's true, Batman is too forceful and above the law, but aren't those exactly the same issues lurking within his own shadow? The nightmare shows us that tyrant Superman is a possibility. Superman's power is unchecked and accountable to no one but himself. Superman is critical of Batman because he reflects exactly what he unconsciously fears about himself. Only when Superman's facade of flawlessness is stripped away can he humble understand that no one stays good in this world, and that the solution is something other than eternal error-free perfection. This is not an admonishment not to fight. As Nietzsche is even more frequently quoted, what does not kill me makes me stronger. I am forever struck by the fact that kryptonite was introduced to the Superman mythos as a fatal weakness, but it unlocked radiation as the key to Superman's nature, which went on to becoming the source of his strength in the form of solar radiation. Once the mechanism behind the weakness is known, becomes conscious, it creates an opportunity to turn it to power. This is a reoccurring theme in the mythos. Being orphaned and the tragedy of Krypton allows adoption and gives Superman to the world, from death to rebirth to resurrection. Similarly, while Zod was around, Superman was our guy. We named him, fought alongside him, and were only too happy for his help. But when Superman vanquishes Zod, he takes on the mantle of Kryptonian, an alien invader. Similar to how Percival is suddenly perceived through the reputation of the Red Knight. It's astonishing how the public starts to conflate Superman with everything that Zod was and did. And we know that this is not just a story conceit, but something psychologically true. Because there are countless audience members that hold Superman directly and intentionally accountable for Zod's independent choices and actions. How many times have you heard the claim that Superman decimated the city, that Superman disregarded civilian safety, that Superman was reckless, and that Superman had murder in his heart? But once Superman came to grips with that reputation, he was able to redeem it and give birth to the superhero. Only by withdrawing our projections and becoming aware of the faults we previously projected onto others can we ever hope to take corrective measures. This process of withdrawal and integration is a difficult task, for it takes courage to face up to one's weaknesses and dark qualities. But while difficult, this task is crucial in the battle of life, for failure to confront one's shadow leaves these elements free to grow in scope and influence. As Jung explains, when one tries desperately to be good and wonderful and perfect, then all the more the shadow develops a definite will to be black and evil and destructive. People cannot see that. They are always striving to be marvelous, and then they discover that terrible destructive things happen which they cannot understand. And they either deny that such facts have anything to do with them, or if they admit them, they take them for natural afflictions, or they try to minimize them and to shift the responsibility elsewhere. The fact is that if one tries beyond one's capacity to be perfect, the shadow descends into hell and becomes the devil. <laughs> there is much more that we can say on this. My notes ramble on and on, but to bring us back to Percival, note that this is a largely naive and unconscious encounter. So, as we psychologically predict, Percival will take on the weaknesses of his adversary along with his equipment. In this case, the Red Knight's weaknesses were social convention. He doesn't take Percival seriously because a fool lacks the station and appearance of a worthy foe. He doesn't take Percival seriously because it would be a dishonor according to social convention. And he doesn't defend 
himself seriously because despite Percival having no other weapons, the Red Knight can't imagine Percival throwing his javelin which would violate the social conventions of civilized combat. And it bears some echoes of sending out a shepherd boy with a sling to face a giant armed and armored conventionally, completely unstoppable by conventional measures and expectations. Where did you train? On a farm? If I wanted it, you'd be dead already. So, just as these social conventions end up being the death of the Red Knight, they will turn out to be the source of Percival's greatest shame and failing. As I said, we could fill volumes on this, so let's just get back to our story. So doubtless, Percival is now empowered with the apparatus, accoutrement, and appellations of a knight. But make no mistake, he is no knight. It's not enough to just put on the armor, put on the hat, or put on the roll. Becoming a knight, or a superhero, takes trials, tribulations, and training. A whole body of life experience and character growth to fill out that armor or costume. Clark is not a superhero yet. He's just the guy who beats Zod. Just like Percival is not a knight yet, he's just the guy who beat the Red Knight. The power to destroy is not the power to be. Status is different than being. It's easier to be a critic than a creator. It's easier to tear down a knight than to become one. It's easier to be a wicked god than a good one. It's easier to dress as a knight than know how to be one. And it's easier to be called Superman before you become a superhero. Both stories highlight this with the vanquished foe, to remind you that the station isn't just trappings, title, costume, or power, but a long quest of personal growth. Both characters try to grope around in the dark to measure up, trying different things somewhat aimlessly. Clark is saving lives, averting disasters, but purely reactive without a publicly known purpose or mission. Percival, meanwhile, just goes where his horse takes him, never taking the reins, letting nature simply take him from adventure to adventure. Now next, he lets the reins lie slack on the horse's neck. In this tradition, the horse represents the will in nature, and the rider represents the rational control. Here, nature is what's moving us. At this point, neither character's approach is particularly sophisticated. For Clark, it's see trouble, act to help. For Percival, he more or less follows the instructions of his mother, even when he's misinterpreting the scene or misunderstanding the instruction. They more or less just go with their gut on every occasion, which we're going to abridge for time. Percival's next major milestone is when he comes upon the castle of an old knight. He's invited in as the Red Knight, but it's obvious he's a fool once the armor comes off. He's still constantly asking questions, still untrained and uncivilized. But the old knight can tell Percival has untapped potential. He trains Percival in knighthood. He teaches him how to ride, how to fight, and most of all, about chivalry and spirituality. It is with the old knight that Percival, a wild boy raised in the woods, is at last civilized. Joseph Campbell elaborates. So he teaches him the arts of knighthood, how to handle weapons, and what the honor system is. And among the uh, requirements of the honor system is, a knight does not ask unnecessary questions. Important. If you want to be a proper knight, you don't ask unnecessary questions. It's a lovely, lovely, idyllic period in the romance. And finally, the old man offers his daughter to Parsifal. Now that's good old standard stuff. I told you earlier, the problem was the wasteland. People living life inauthentically. Not their life, but the life that's put on them by the society. And Parsifal thinks, I do not marry a woman who is given to me. I earn my wife. That's the beginning of marriage and love united. This is the first reply to the split between love and marriage. 
Put a pin in that last point, we'll come back to it and its significance later. Of course, we can see some of the parallels to our Superman. Even though Clark has a completely unconventional background as a journalist, Perry sees the potential in him and hires him as a stringer, and Clark actually achieves some acclaim as a journalist. However, just as the old knight suppresses Percival's inquisitive nature and recommends that he stay silent, Perry plays a role in suppressing Clark's journalistic impulses and keeps shutting down his stories. Of course, it isn't just Perry. Clark is being instructed in society's limitations by its many institutions, politicians, the media, the military, the rich and powerful magnates. At every turn, his natural impulses are nitpicked, penned in, criticized, and corrected by these stand-ins for society. He's too active. He's too passive. He's too patriotic. He's not patriotic enough. On one hand, it's easy to look at all these critiques as antagonistic to our Superman, but on the other hand, they are a real-world wake-up call to what being in the real world entails. Up until now, Superman has had it easy. He just did what he wanted and everyone went along. The world has been so caught up with what Superman can do that no one has asked what he should do. Outside of a crisis, there's little need for reflection upon the underpinnings of your actions. On the other hand, inside of an emergency, it's easy to be reactive and criticize everything that you did before. What we need is reflection before the crisis, so that during the crisis, we react less. That's part of where these films push us. Just how much are we taking for granted and ignoring with superheroes? Or how often is our latest story just reacting to the last superhero? <laughs> and of course, I talk about superheroes because I'm not talking about superheroes. <laughs> Author and journalist Dan Harris. But I think the choice is, do you want to have this stuff because the, it's there. The trauma is there. Would you like to have it lurking in the background of your psyche, driving you blindly in many ways? Or would you like to drag it into the sunlight and investigate it journalistically, non-judgmentally, in a friendly, kind way, so that you have a choice? Instead of reacting blindly to everything because we have no visibility into our inner life, you can respond wisely. We are in an extremely uncomfortable and difficult situation right now. Do you want to face that? That forthrightly so that you can be calmer and saner and that you can be more effective and more helpful to other people. So a reminder for that theme of balance, criticism and reflection can go too far just as blind or unconscious adherence can. Neither story is saying that you dispense with society and its conventions. A critical step in the lives of both characters is coming to grips with society and how it bears down against their nature. As we said before, both characters are somewhat aimless before their indoctrination. They need society and its institutions to give them structure. It's a valuable and necessary corrective and a part of growing up and maturing. Both Clark and Percival have to go through this. The trick is balance, not letting society completely silence your nature. Now, leading up to this, Campbell says, a lovely idyllic period. You might even call it a honeymoon period. <laughs> That's right, just as the troubadours gloss over that part of Percival's development, so too did the filmmakers skip Superman's honeymoon period, where it would have been easy to rest on his laurels. The great hero of the Black Zero event, savior of humanity with a monument and fans. But Clark does not rest with the situation he was given, but seeks to discover and earn his calling, not just as the hero who responded to a particular situation, but as the hero who will model what heroism can be beyond circumstances or societal expectation. 
like Percival, he doesn't exactly know what that is. He just knows what it isn't. And in the meantime, they just follow society's rules as best they can. For Percival, he isn't just accepting the marriage given to him and settling as the old knight's son. He goes on to follow the code of chivalry, saving damsels, besting villains, and attending church. And for Clark, it isn't just retiring after the BZE. He continues to go out there and intervene in a way that's okay to the world, saving lives from natural disaster, accidents, and acts of God. Now, there's a funny parallel between the two in this part of their story. Percival is going around righting wrongs, rescuing damsels, helping the poor, defending the weak, etc. Yet he's mindful of his training, so he never kills again. Instead, every knight defeated is offered mercy, and in response, they pledge their allegiance, service, and loyalty to the Red Knight, the great king who defeated them in single combat. Only Percival isn't a king with a castle, kingdom, or army, at least not to his knowledge, so he accepts their vows and instructs them to pledge their fealty to the only good king that he knows, King Arthur. So imagine what's happening in Camelot. Every so often, a knight shows up to serve King Arthur at the instruction of the Red Knight. Parsifal subdues many knights in his career, but none are killed. He extracts a promise from each knight he conquers that he will go to the court of King Arthur and put himself in the service of that noble king. Well, during the course of the next few months, a number of people arrive in Arthur's court saying, this Red Knight <laughs> sent me. And Arthur says, boy, we really lost something there. So the court starts out to find him. No one at the court knows who the Red Knight is or why he's doing this, but apparently he's their best and greatest. There's no communication between Percival and the kingdom that he's serving and improving. He's anonymous and silent, and yet their champion. Our Superman is the same. Hidden behind a secret identity in this version, he doesn't go to Washington or the UN or make his introduction through the press. No, instead, Superman just keeps saving the day silently in allegiance with America and just sends other knights back to the kingdom. I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. Look, I'm here to help, but it has to be on my own terms, and you have to convince Washington of that. One of the defining adventures where Percival sends Camelot an army of knights is in rescuing his sweetheart-to-be Blanche Fleur, or White Flower, as she's known in Cratian's account. Percival comes across a town desolated by siege and seeks lodging at its keep. The guards are run down, with thousand-yard stares and dark circles under their eyes. But nonetheless, they show Percival as much hospitality as they can. But he presents as an enigma because he doesn't speak a word as he thought his master had taught him. Oh, Clark, you have to keep this side of yourself a secret. The beautiful young orphan queen of the castle under siege greets him and treats him as the guest of honor. He's bathed, fed, and sent to bed. That evening, she comes to his bedside and begins to weep and pray. Percival's compassion comes out, and for her, he's willing to speak to comfort her. Now, you've revealed your identity to Miss Lane over there. Why won't you do the same with us? She opens Cal's eyes to an entirely new way of existing. He's so used to being private with who he is, and finally he got to share it with someone, and he could trust her. And she gave him the concept of a future on the planet. He tells his story. My father believed that if the world found out who I really was, they'd reject me out of fear, because he was convinced that the world was not ready. He talks about his master, and this pleases Blanche Fleur. Percival's master, the old knight, is her uncle, an honorable man and a good judge of character. Reassured that her uncle vouches for this knight, Blanche Fleur explains her woes. There's a wicked king that wants to take her as a bride and her kingdom by force. She would rather die than submit, but only 50 of her original 300 knights are left, so the castle will be overtaken tomorrow. She describes how she will fight to her dying breath, but weeps at the inevitable slaughter. 
Percival says he'll take care of it, and she believes him. He's one freshly minted knight, and she still has 50 other men to fight for her against impossible odds. A seasoned military leader with much more power, but... Thank you. For what? For believing in me. It didn't make much difference in the end. It did to me. She thanks him and leaves, and the next morning, in a series of unlikely events, Percival ends up face-to-face -face with the enemy forces general. As they initially believe that Percival is Blanche Fleur's representative for the terms of surrender and capitulation. I take it you're Zod? General Zod, our commander. It's all right, Feyora. We can forgive Cal any lapses in decorum. He's a stranger to our ways. This should be cause for celebration, not conflict. But their parlay turns into a fight. I can't be a part of this. Then what can you be a part of? Percival defeats the general, who agrees to turn himself and his forces over to King Arthur. And Percival rescues all of Blanche Fleur's imprisoned knights. You can save all of them. And then he routs the lecherous king who is after her. You're a monster, Zod. And I'm gonna stop you. Here, Joseph Campbell relates Wolfram's ending to the Blanche Fleur episode. Well, he's learned all the lessons. He says, you go to Arthur's court, tell them Parsifal sent you. When Parsifal comes back, has put her hair up in the way of a married woman. They're married. This is marriage from love, the mind's love, the love of character, the love of quality. And they go to bed. Well, he doesn't know anything. She doesn't know much more. And so they just lie there. As Wolfram says, not many a lady nowadays would have been satisfied with such a night. And there was the third night. And then Parsifal said, oh, yes, mother told me. And so Wolfram says, if you'll pardon me for letting you know, they interlaced arms and legs and thought this is what we should have been doing all the time. And uh, the marriage was consummated. No priest. The answer, marriage is the confirmation of love. And love, or sexual love, is the sacramentalization of marriage. And this is the ideal of marriage actually in our world today. Marriage for love. This is the most difficult kind of marriage because the whole basis of it is relationship, person to person, not to this function, that function, or another. Now the point here is it was not marriage that began with physical sex. It ends with physical sex. That's the other part. It starts in the spirit and is fulfilled in the flesh. This is Wolfram, though he tells us this. In Parsifalin's marriage, Wolfram shows us a revolutionary concept, marriage for love. Up until the 12th century, marriage had been seen as a, a purely social transaction, a contract merging two families. Attraction and affection were seen as secondary, if even that. Then the idea of romantic love burst into world culture, and along with it came the revolutionary concept of marrying not for political or financial reason, but for love. The idea that women and men should choose their own partners challenged the social and religious authorities, and so, like the idea of the grail as a symbol of personal revelation, marriage for love embodies the new Western spirit of individualism. And so the marriage arises by mutual voluntary agreement, not by society or the organs, as Campbell writes elsewhere. In these latter cases, marriage is transactional, impersonal, and debasing. The other person doesn't matter, only one's biological urges, or the other person doesn't matter, only how the union impacts society, economics, politics, or power. In 20 minutes, you're getting married to a girl whose father owns the biggest tracts of open land in Britain. But I don't want land. Listen, we live on a bloody swamp. We need all the land we can get. But, but I don't like her. Don't like her? What's wrong with her? She's beautiful, she's rich, she's got huge tracts of land. 
In Percival's marriage, personhood takes primacy. It occurs without sex or ceremony and is consummated only after they had already committed to one another. Percival's total commitment to Blanche Fleur will be proven later, and in fact, to him, she is the key to the grail. While Campbell considers this a novel revolution against tradition, it could be argued as a return to the beginning. Similar to how many of the concepts explored in Snyder's Superman are considered confrontational to or a radical departure from the traditional mythos, are really arguably just a return to Superman's Golden Age roots, in the beginning when penned by Siegel and Schuster. Accordingly, on marriage in the beginning, if we rely upon the Genesis account as the mythological bedrock for the society Kratian was writing to, Kratian is reminding medieval Christian readers that marriage began before procreation and before institutions, before economics, hierarchy, and politics. In the garden, Adam and Eve were one before they ever had kids, before there was a society. He was encouraging his readers to remember that the heart of marriage was love between persons and not just the fulfillment of societal expectations. This is partly why he conceived of the love triangle between Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot, not just to create the scandal, sensation, and titillation of an affair, but to highlight the differences between institutional marriage and personal romantic intimacy. Moreover, including the affair was not an endorsement of dalliances outside of marriage. Most renderings show how much tragedy befalls Camelot for issues around this, showing the dysfunction when the two are disconnected. It's an encouragement not just to disregard love, but to do everything in one's power to unite love, marriage, and society as one. Cratian reinforces this theme with how the purity of Percival's commitment to Blanche Fleur could be contrasted against Gawain's career as a womanizer, and how Gawain suffers his own way with that. More on that next episode. So, hopefully you can see some of the parallels to our Superman. Percival fell in love with Blanche Fleur for her kindness, beauty, good reputation, fighting spirit, and faith in him. Blanche Fleur fell in love with Percival for his kindness, compassion, reputation, and looks and courage and rescue. Whereas the wife offered to Percival an arranged marriage is more like how some creators approach the Superman mythos with much taken for granted and suspended by contract societal expectations, an arcane and unexamined automatic ceremony. Kratian was channeling something much more similar to Man of Steel, where the trappings were all challenged, reaffirmed, and therefore earned. The back and forth between Lois and Clark isn't teenage banter or juvenile love-hate, but more based in merit. And if you need those merits parsed out for you in more detail, just go back and listen to episode 64 on commitment. To parallel Percival's myth, Clark and Lois are not together by societal expectation, not by pure biological lust, and not by institutional marriage, but by personhood first. Man of Steel is essentially chaste, and in BVS, they are married, albeit posthumously, without an ordained minister or even the legal right to be, but married nonetheless in the same sense that Percival was. Unquestionably, Clark is Lois's champion, and he becomes unhinged when she's not around. We'll get into that part of Percival's story next episode. But in the end, she is his world. And while this might sound like gibberish at this point, let me say, just as Percival was restored to the grail through the purity of his love for Blanche Fleur, Clark is cured of the wasteland through his love and commitment to Lois. Oh my goodness, there is so much more that we could say, but we must move on. Well, Percival is now effectively king of this castle. He's bested armies, he could settle down and live out his life in this kingdom, and that's what Blanche Fleur initially asks him to do. But Percival is mindful that he hasn't seen his mother in all this time. He plans to go see her and bring her to the castle to make her a part of the formal marriage ceremony. Clark had this sent here so he could surprise you. 
and as Percival heads off to the wild woods of his childhood again, he is entering the middle age of his life. Our story continues next episode where the parallels will become even more astounding and stark, but before we wrap up this one, let me do some historical housekeeping with another parallel that may make next episode flow better. So while we've largely been focused on Cratian as the first grail writer with a legacy lasting centuries, part of the reason his story took off was explored and iterated was because it was never finished. His enormous impact on the literary world of the Middle Ages might be attributed to the desire to complete it. As Professor Potke gives you this context, consider its echoes with another unfinished work. The romance might very well be unfinished. The story of the Grail breaks off in mid-sentence. And it breaks off in mid-sentence at the very beginning of an episode, where it looks like something new is just starting again. Is the work unfinished? There are three traditional answers to this. Most people will simply tell you that Chen never finished the story of the Grail. And they suppose that he didn't finish it because he died before completing it. Other people think that he just didn't get around to finishing it, that it was too big a task. Second traditional answer is that the work is unfinished, but there's enough there to have us figure out what Cratian intended, both about the form of the work and about its content. But there's a third response to the question about whether the romance is unfinished. And this says that Cratian did not finish the romance on purpose. He left it looking obviously broken off, obviously unfinished. And why did he do this? He did this so that we would ask about the end of the romance, and we would imagine that end for ourselves. I've been emphasizing that the reason that the grail as a symbol is so mysterious is that it makes us ask about it. It makes us go searching for meaning. It makes us go looking for answers. The important lesson about the grail is that learning isn't passive. We can't just wait for an author to give the revelation to us. We have to figure it out for ourselves. Percival, after all, has to learn to look within, to find the wisdom within himself, and so do we. It's up to us to finish Cratian's romance for him to imagine the end and the meaning that we think he put there. The important thing about the grail that we learned from Cratian is that it's not the grail itself that's important, it's what's in it. So Cratian had envisioned a grand five-romance arc for his Arthurian epic, but when his work went unfinished, it was picked up by others to continue or conclude the story. Sometimes accreditation gets muddled by mechanics unseen by the average audience member. How does Zack Snyder's Justice League differ from Justice League directed by Zack Snyder, they might ask? Over the next few years, several poets attempted to continue Cratian's continuity. This extended universe of stories by other directors are called the continuations and prologues, mostly occurring after or parallel to the events of Cratian's works, but a few taking cameo characters in the original romance into their own prequel franchise. For example, a two-manuscript epic elaborating on Percival's father. These continuations differ in their degree of respect for Cratian's account, but they all technically occur in the same fictional universe, all have their own styles and agendas, but none were as impactful as the original. Campbell dismisses them off hand. The story was continued, as he left it, by what are called Cratian's continuators. Some scholars see three men, some see five there. But they didn't continue the story. They brought in a lot of other material, dealing largely with another set of adventures entirely. And Professor Dorsey Armstrong concurs. Cratian's story of Percival is unfinished. Many later authors, especially French ones, would try to finish and adapt it, but none of them really did a totally satisfactory job. 
Kratian was a troubadour, versed in performance and the oral tradition. What's a troubadour? Literature isn't the only way to tell a story. There are oral storytellers, usually singers, people who go from place to place and sing a story, a ballad, an epic, about heroes and other characters that are familiar to their audience. We could refer to these people as troubadours. These are bards in English or scalds in Old Norse, or shopes in Old English. But the troubadours are frequently telling stories of King Arthur. So this was art on demand, often crafted to spec. Kretian makes reference to his patrons who have supported him as a writer and who have given him the basic plotline of the tale out of which they wish him to craft a masterpiece. What's interesting is how Kretian adapts his approach and theme, love or religion, to the main preoccupations of his patrons. He actually coins a phrase to explain how he takes his source material and renders it in a particular style. He calls this a belle conjointure, or what we might translate as a lovely or beautiful conjoining. If you remember only a few things about Kretian de Troyes, please promise me that you'll at least remember this. Kratian was working from source material not his own, but drawing out themes to resonate with his audience, much like how a director taking on a juggernaut intellectual property are beholden to the source material, its holders, and the audience, who all have expectations and demand a masterpiece. <laughs> but his performance background is why his works flowed with the flair and quality of a music video. He was basically transcribing what he had already embodied and executed in the court countless times before. Grounded in performance and the oral tradition, his story was also a bridge between the oral Celtic traditions Authorian legend drew from. Kratian understood the unconscious value in the oral tradition, told and retold, and sought to represent that value to the contemporary court, whether through the lens of courtly love, religion, chivalry, or romance. Being versed in the oral tradition and his intentionality is one of the reasons the Jungians find more value and truth in Kratian's renderings than in the later iterations to come, because they believe that it's closer to the older and deeper unconscious than versions with more complicated agendas. Moreover, those truths seem particularly apt for today. Kratian's patrons were princesses, and ladies of the court and other noble women. And so, in a sense, he was speaking to an audience that had already, quote-unquote, made it, already accomplished their defining societal purpose from birth, to be married and produce an heir, and then, now what? So while Kratian, of course, commented on societal structure, the themes primarily dealt with the personal inner journey one must take to come to terms with that, and these are apt for application to the hero's journey, midlife crises, and other psychological phenomena. Of course, the Grail story continues in countless iterations that we could spend a lifetime studying, but the next creator to mention is the favorite of Joseph Campbell and the fun to say, Wolfram von Eschenbach. His version was later popularized and rendered into Wagner's opera, Parsifal. Part of the reason that Wolfram's rendering resonates to this day was his particular point of view. While Kratian was a royal scholar, troubadour, cleric, and poet-performer, and while the Vulgate cycle writers were essentially cloistered Cistercian monks, Wolfram was an impoverished Bavarian knight who claimed to be illiterate, dictating stories responding to the Crusades in the Holy Land. I say claimed because there's sort of an inherent dishonesty to Wolfram's story, which is framed as coming from a fictitious Moorish manuscript and he constantly invents alleged Muslim practices and words which are clearly made up. 
nonetheless, people like Wolfram's version because its messages and symbols seem to be more clear. In short, that we should not be fighting the Crusades, pitting Christians against pagans, and that society had lost something in all of its artifices. And these themes are particularly resonant with Joseph Campbell, who loves their countercultural message, and the equivocation of faiths fits perfectly into his comparative mythology philosophy of the monomyth. Here, he contrasts the two and raises a theme of particular interest to him. Kratium was a virtuosic versifier. One of the German scholars said he could shake couplets from his sleeve like a magician. He never finished it. The story, however, was developed to the full by Wolfram von Eschenbach, who was a Bavarian knight. He understood knighthood and what it was about in a way that Gottfried never did, in a way that the monks couldn't. And here you have the hero Percival, Parsifal, as the ideal of the 12th century knight. His version of the grail is of a stone vessel, a stone that was brought down from heaven. Now what he's doing there is imitating the Kaaba of the Muslims, the stone at Mecca, which was brought down from heaven. The grail was a stone brought down from heaven by the neutral angels. There's the key. He elaborates on the war in heaven and various traditions about it, and then continues his heresy. Well, one way or another, here was this war in heaven, and there were angels who sided with God, and there were angels who sided with Lucifer, a pair of opposites. You understand that the metaphysical mystery is to go past all opposites. Where you have opposites of good and evil, you're simply in the field of ethics. The neutral angels, neither on God's side nor on the devil's side. And Wolfram interprets the name of Percival as Perceval, the one piercing through the middle of the valley, going between the pair of opposites. So you see, this is heresy. We're in the realm of Gnostic traditions right away here. This is difficult stuff. Wolfram begins his whole romance with a long verse to the point that black and white are the qualities of every act. Every act has both good and evil. What are you going to do living? Since everything you do has two effects, he says, all we can do is lean toward the good. In listening to that, maybe the parallels strike you. While Kratian begins with spring and is essentially optimistic, individual, and internal, with good and evil delineated, Wolfram's opening is essentially a pessimistic critique of society, systems, and the external, with a world of moral grays and compromises. You could compare and contrast the two endlessly as akin to Superman or Batman, Man of Steel or BVS. In Man of Steel, Superman is fairly clearly a good thing for the world, but in BVS we're shown the possible pitfalls, negative consequences, and the problem the Superman presents. Neutrality is one of the undercurrents in BVS, which is why Superman's allegiances are questioned and commented on. The world needs to know what he stands for. How far will he take his power? Does he act by our will or by his own? On this earth, every act is a political act. So apparently Superman doesn't want us to think of him as American anymore. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. And of course, BVS is full of alleged heresies to some who consider themselves the comic book faithful. Of course, while scholars differ in their preference and their emphasis, most are a fan of both. Just as you might have a predilection towards one of the world's finest over the other, this is just a preference, not an invalidation of the other. And we've discussed such differences on the show before. I need to briefly mention the Vulgate cycle. A cycle just means a collection of stories with common characters in loose continuity. It's similar to how we use the word mythos. Like, the Superman mythos is all Superman stories, even if separate canons. 
So I have to mention the Vulgate cycle because while Jungians prefer Kratian and the Campbell camp like Wolfram, you probably find yourself unfamiliar with both of these versions. The Vulgate cycle is where the stories were taken up by Cistercian monks and given a church-forward agenda. This is where the Grail becomes holy and its origins get tied up in Gnostic Christian Apocrypha. The Grail becomes explicitly tied to Jesus Christ and many of the trappings. The Last Supper, the Crucifixion, the Spear of Longinus or the Spear of Destiny, Joseph of Arimathea, the Kingdom of Heaven, Transubstantiation, Eternal Life, and so on and so forth. This is where Percival is replaced by the virgin monk knight Galahad. Cistercians who wrote the story from a monastic point of view. And they followed a man called Robert of Boron, who also had dealt with this story as dealing with the uh, vessels of Christ's suffering. And here you have the ecclesiastical version of the Grail, in which the hero is Galahad. And the name Galahad, called Galahope, is supposed to have come from the Hebrew and means heap of witness and it's definitely an ecclesiastical accent one of the things you get in that story is the disqualification of most of the knights because of their secular character professor armstrong comments the cycle reads something like what we might imagine would happen if you asked a priest a fortune 500 ceo a doctor a five-star general and a yoga instructor each to write a chapter of a single book and then you publish that book as a one self-contained and these stories were compiled and reinterpreted by Mallory's La Morte de Arthur, which is generally the basis of today's Arthurian stories, like White's The Once and Future King or Borman's Excalibur. Its spread and influence comes from it being, first, a compelling complete telling of King Arthur's life from cradle to grave under a single author's pen and one mind telling a cohesive tale, and second, in no small part, its perfect timing with the development of the Gutenberg printing press. The explosive reproduction of La Morte d'Arthur canonizes much of Arthur's story for the next 500 years. You might parallel this with the convenient timing of Superman's debut, with colorized newsprint hitting economies of scale, allowing for wide and inexpensive distribution. Superman managed to ride the radio waves and was on air when TV transitioned to color. Superman 79 came just in time to experience the advent of the blockbuster. It seems like Superman needs another technology logical frontier to pioneer. But that's another episode. Suffice to say, superhero fans who've stressed out over continuity are nothing new. Arthurian legend has them beat by nearly a thousand years. <laughs> and that providence is part of the reason that we're recalling the story because it's the prototype for the Western hero. There's a reason it affixed itself to the minds of Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and so many creators since. It's the template for the hero's journey, Luke Skywalker, Indiana Jones, and of course, Superman. Seeking wisdom from our stories is the essence of the Grail quest itself, and something nearly all surviving Arthurian legend engages in. This deeper reading is not just a product of our time, but intended at inception of the medieval audience. This is not popular literature, and this is not folk literature. This is definitely very, very self-conscious literature. I think primarily the narratives were enjoyed for themselves, their own sake. They liked the narratives, but, but entertainment was never entertainment full stop. And this is where this idea of their own sense of chivalry, their own sense of the complexity of chivalry, their own sense of virtus, their own sense of what it meant to be good. You were not just a brave knight, you had to be a good knight as well. So 
you have these stories which are wonderful in and of themselves and they're, they're universal and timeless stories, but for them, they also had a particular meaning. Now, what are people making of this story? What does it mean to them? Are they, what are they reading into it? Can we just uh, get some idea of the, the story is a story is a story? Fine. Then what? They liked stories which had deeper meaning. They were very used to reading the Bible. They were very used to seeing history as somehow completing Bible history. So this sort of story, which was a good story, but yet had something else about them, is really what they would expect of this story. Otherwise, they would have thought it very dull. But the Grail stories focus on the ideals of this warrior elite. What you had to be was a good Christian and a good Christian warrior. And you couldn't just be, it says very clearly in parts of it, you cannot win the Grail by force. You can only win the Grail by other means. So you have to be a good knight, but you also be a knight who is aware of the Christian message, aware of higher things. They were learning the ideals of the knightly world and the Christian ideals of the knightly world. And those questions of virtue, power, journey, and quest continue to this day. Because it speaks so much to the individual now that the popular idea of the Grail Quest is becoming what you can do, doing your best, achieving your dream. I think a very American sense of self-realisation. And it's undergone a great change in that respect, but it's changed to fit the ideals of the society, which is using it as a, a thing to think with. Right, and it still has purchase. Very Very much much so. (laughs) The Grail is a vessel that adapts to its audience, and in the medieval period, central to the story are knights. But as Professor Dorsey Armstrong points out, Knight isn't a word that exists when historical Arthur lived. It's a word that comes into being much later. And so it's time honored to take ancient tales and truths and put on a new shiny coat of armor or capes and cowls for contemporary consumption. The most rewarding mythological experience you can have is to see how it lives in your own psychological structure. (laughs) So far, we've been introduced to our Grail Knight, our Paladin, next episode, the Grail and the Dark Knight. And so I've rambled on long enough. Boy, I'm out of practice and am exhausted. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. <laughs> I'm happy to bring you another mini-series. If you could do me a favor, if you see a sudden dearth of Percival parallels posted online, be sure to point them to this mini-series so they can get a fuller picture behind the comparison. I appreciate it. Thanks. For this series, I've read over a dozen books, countless papers, and thousands of lines of the original poems, not to mention hours of documentaries, podcasts, and lectures, finally putting it all together in just three episodes with many starts, stops, and variants, and literally hundreds of clips to compile, all ending in literally hours of recording and editing. So I hope you find these insights interesting, but appreciate where they come from and their deliberate assembly. For example, in the version that you just heard, the impact and authority of Joseph K. 
Campbell and Carl Jung are basically taken for granted, but the original drafts for this episode drew on more biographical elements for Campbell and Jung, which are fascinating in their own right with another level of parallels, but it was just a few too many stories to juggle, so those were edited out. Still, on your own, I recommend a study of their works and their lives. You can find some of the resources I read in the show notes. Note that this episode is mostly set up, so if you're wondering what the point of all those parallels are, I promise the payoff is in episodes to come. That said, my main goal is to provide a starting point, as nearly any of these ideas could sustain an entire episode all on their own. We're just trying to cover as much ground as we can in this survey series, not go all out on any one topic. So I'm very excited to see what people come up with once they set off on their own. And finally, these episodes were written and produced before our present state of affairs. So I hope you and yours are well and safe. Be well, my friends. You're the answer, son.
You're the answer, son. <laughs>